Right. Uh, we're in uh, John 18 still, right? And we had gotten through with the slave's ear getting cut off, and we know mm -hmm. from another gospel account that uh, Jesus healed that ear. Uh, which, it, I, again, I just, to me, if I were standing there watching, that would be just one of the most awesome moments. Uh, the, the, the church dignitaries coming to, call, to uh, arrest Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus already being bound. He releases his bonds to heal the servant of the high priest here. And the evidence indicates Malchus had some sort of position. Yeah, he was an officer. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, Peter missed. He aimed for his neck. <laughs> Quite <laughs> obvious. <laughs> the fisherman gave him a break. <laughs> fisherman, not a short soldier. That's, by the way, that's what the Donatists used on Augustine. Uh, when Augustine wanted, uh, was trying to use, was trying to use violence or force to get people to be Christians, the Donatists told him that Jesus called us to be fishers of men, not soldiers. So, just a little add in there. All right, um, Christian, would you read for us verses fifteen to eighteen? Okay. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. We can't hide, can we? It is written, there are no secret places with the Lord. Yeah. Um, Peter thought he was being surreptitious and being just one of the crowd. Well, his dialect will give him away. Mm -hmm. He sounded pretty different, probably. <laughs> mm -hmm. Galilean versus yeah. Jerusalem. Uh, keep in mind there was a revival of the Hebrew language in Jerusalem just before the time of Christ. Uh, so Hebrew was in, in Jerusalem. And Greek, or uh, the form of Hebrew that Peter probably spoke was uh, probably uh, kind of Galilean, and which was a very mixed culture. You had, uh, Galilee was the crossroads, particularly the city of Magdala, uh, was the crossroads of all the different cultures that were coming through. And so you had uh, Greek, Roman uh, culture, and then every other culture, subculture. So uh, you are also one of this man's disciples, are you? You are not also one of these man's disciples, are you? That's the way you, you defer to people in, in uh, biblical times. Uh, they would, there's this uh, modality in Greek uh, where it usually... Most versions just translate it, you are one of his disciples, aren't you? Uh, but uh, actually it's, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? It's a skeptical question. It's, mm -hmm. it's a way of saying, I'm not sure about you, but is this possible? Mm -hmm. So, moving on, uh, Shalina, would you read verses 19 to 24, please? The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. 
I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. It's interesting that Jesus confronts authority, doesn't he? He did not cow. He was not a victim in the in the wrong sense that we think of today as a victim. Did Jesus always speak openly to the world? Did he say everything to everybody? Or did he sometimes speak privately to his disciples? This is, this is an example of how we have to not take too literally expressions of all, I have always, as, as just all-inclusive. That's our Greek heritage coming out. Uh, in Hebrew heritage, all does not mean all. And, and always does not mean always. Neither does ever, forever mean forever. <laughs> so, so we have to understand the, the kind of background that you have here in terms of how Hebrew thinking works versus Greek thinking. In Greek thinking, we push everything to its absolute proportions. Uh, we tend to think of infinity as eternity, and we tend to think of uh, always as meaning absolutely always, and, and, and all meaning absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. But but this is not the way the Hebrews think, even would, when they use the word. Would you say the Hebrew thought is more artistic and the Greek is more mathematical in that sense? Because it seems that, you know, when you read some of the words and expressions, there's a lot of hyperbole, there's a lot of... Yeah. Irony, there's a lot of playing with things. In yeah, Hebrew. certainly. And Hebrew is more artistic. I would, yeah. Because you know, the ebbing and flowing that you're talking It actually about. is more artistic than Babylonian, <laughs> uh, which is a related language. Uh, I haven't thought of it as artistry as much as experiential. Okay. Uh, very, very experiential language and very practical, very earthy. So for practical purposes, I've never done this. Right. For practical right. purposes, right. I've always done this. Uh, and, and that's really where I think Hebrew, you know, Hebrew, Hebrew writers practice an economy of words. So they packed meaning. And there is artistry. You're absolutely right. There is artistry. Um, I'm not sure that was ultimately their goal. Their goal right. was to create right. meaning. Right. And, and they did so on very cryptic kinds of ways. See, so you have to really know the language and know how it's expressed and, and what is left out and what is put in. Mm -hmm. With tremendous depth. Tremendous yeah. depth of yeah. understanding. Yeah. Right. I'm not, I'm right. not yeah, implying yeah. shallowness at all, but it seems like insofar as concerns you, exactly. it's true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. For all time, for all peoples, forever and ever, which seems to be more Greek, you know, yeah. th thoroughness. Well, the, the Greek um, linear thinking is is the is really the difference between uh, mm -hmm. Greek and Hebrew? Hebrew th thinking is uh, uh, dynamic, active, um, artistic, and not um, 
and not uh, passive or static. Mm. Which Greek, Greeks had loved this static kind of put it in a box. Mm -hmm. uh, Define it. You know, Define, you know, there's yeah. that interesting thing being posted on Facebook. And I guess this is, this is actually fairly common. Psychologists apparently now think that the difference between men and women is that men uh, think in terms of boxes and their boxes never conjoin, co-join. They, they're separate from each And they, they compartmentalize and they keep those compartments separate mm -hmm. from one another. Whereas women's brains are composed of wires and everything's connected and everything relates to everything else. I agree. <laughs> um, totally. But what is interesting to me is that Hebrew thinking is the wires. It's feminine thinking. And Greek is masculine. So what has happened is that men in our society have been trained in, in Greek ways and that's what has formed and shaped those compartments. That's, that's my theory. It must become kind of irritated then in coming into contact with them. Oh, pardon me, but all hell must break loose when you try and impose Greek thought onto Hebrew, you know, logic. It, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. and, and you look down upon it too, probably, yeah. because it doesn't fit into boxes. The, the, the sad thing is that the, the Hebrews, that when the Hebrews came under control of the Greeks, a lot of them succumbed. And so you find intertestamental literature starts becoming more compartmentalized and, and more uh, legislated. But I, I maintain that the forerunners of the Greeks that actually began this uh, static and uh, spatial kind of thinking and preoccupation is, uh, is the Babylonians. And the Babylonians began it with idolatry. Because once you put, once you put your God in a box, mm -hmm. i.e. an idol, mm -hmm. then you now have a static kind of God. Huh. Um, and, a, and you also have a spatial kind of God. Mm -hmm. You also have designations. This is the God of the such and such, and that is the God of the other thing. And, mm -hmm. and, and then th that was especially rampant in the Northwest Semitic cultures of who worshipped Baal. You had the Baal Melkar, you had the Baal Hamon, you had the Baal Peor, you had, you know, you had all these Baals. Consequently, uh, Hosea mentions them as Baalim, uh, <laughs> the Baals. Yeah, plural. Uh, but one thing they all had in common was a physical image. Yeah, the static God that can't do anything for himself, you have to do everything for him. I, I better stop here. No, I dare you. I dare you. You told oh, me to dare you. I'll questions. dare you, Jean. <laughs> I'm the visitor. I better be quiet. <laughs> no, 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 Speak up. Speak up. Speak up. Sorry. I, I, I just... I'm, I dare you. I, I can't help but think about the correlation between static idolatry and static beliefs that we then put in a box and then we try to put everybody in that box with those beliefs. <laughs> That's happened yeah. for centuries, too, though. Well, it yeah, has. I mean, historically, look at what the Jews are doing to Jesus right here. Yeah. Uh, but sad be the, those of us who really have abhorred the Roman Catholic religion and then become just like it.
Yeah. I was just thinking of the Marys when I said the manifestations of Mary because when we talk a little bit oh, yeah. about that in Italian, I'm going, that just sounds like the manifest. This is Mary of the light, so this is Mary of the... Well, and you have the same thing with Ishtar of Babylonia. Mm-hmm. And Ishtar parallels Mary quite a bit. And, and the interesting thing was when I was doing my doctorate pro- program at, at Berkeley, uh, one of my classmates who we actually were the only two accepted in the program the same year, Though I assure everybody that that doesn't mean anything because I have a feeling we were the only two applied who applied. <laughs> but anyway, we were accepted into the joint program of Near Eastern Religions. And uh, she came in with a, a Mormon background. She had been raised Mormon and she had joined the Catholic Church and actually worshipped for one of the dioceses in San Francisco. And she would bring up all these things that were similar in Babylonia with the Roman Catholic Church. And I would just sit there going, I'm glad you're the one saying that. <laughs> you know, because that just gives it all the more credibility for a, Roman, a dedicated Roman Catholic to say these things. But uh, sad, sad we be if we imitate that. So moving on, Jesus gets struck in the face for asking a why question. You notice that? I had a stu- I, no, I, I met someone out in the Midwest one time who told me that she had attended PUC and that she nearly got kicked out by a religion professor for asking an innocent question in class. He literally went to the president and asked her to be exp- asked oh him goodness. to expel her. Hmm. And she thought she was just asking an innocent question. She wasn't rebellious. She wasn't uh, upset. But because she dared to ask a question, uh, she really got kicked out of college. And the question was? She didn't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure she even remembered. Hmm. But she said, it, you know, it, it was... It was probably a why question, an, an, but an innocent one. You know, sure. Why uh, or how? Jesus gets struck in the face for asking a why question. Why is that? Why do you, what is the mechanism going on here that would, would uh, just send absolute rejection of Jesus and, and feel like that we had the right to punish him for asking a question? Because it is the truth. And they simply could not handle the truth. Just like today. We why could couldn't handle the truth. Why couldn't they handle the truth? Well they were they were so close in thought. I mean they just they were so um, isolated in terms of like this is what they believed in that was absolute to them. And then they Their box they, wouldn't let them see anything and, else and in their box. Their, their box gave them so much power too though. In fact, they wore yeah. little boxes. Okay, Remember I think that? I think Christian has has nailed it. Gee, to them, if you ask a if you ask a why question of someone who believes that authority is power and is top down control, you are affronting that authority. It's the same thing. If I <laughs> I grew up, uh, my mother. I've said this before, but my mother read uh, Child Guidance about the time that I decided one day that she needed to change her discipline methods, methods of discipline. Uh, and she discovered that from reading Child Guidance that spanking was, was the last resort and not the first. 
she hadn't been raised that way. She wasn't raising my brother that way, but she decided that uh, from now on she would try talking to her children instead of spanking. And it was, she had got marvelous results <clears throat> instead of defiance. So I grew up, I, I was the beneficiary of that because I was only four when it happened. I grew up with uh, understanding that I could ask questions of my parents and they would give me reasonable answers. So one day when I was 13, I was going out and about with my my dad and he walked into some kind of medical clinic or something and there was a waiting room and in walked a family that I deemed were hippies. This is back, you, you understand, back in the day. And uh, parents with about five children, I think, <laughs> came into this room and the children just went berserk with magazine racks, started pulling out magazines, shredding them. <laughs> and mom screams, stop it right now. And the child said, why? And kept shredding. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the mother said, because I said. I remember being utterly shocked. That to me was just horrifying. And I went home in great distress to my mother, and I said, Mom, I can't believe what I heard. And I told her the story. And she said, well, I'm afraid, Jean, that that's all too common. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, don't tell me that. <laughs> she just, she, I said, she didn't give him an answer. She just said, because I said. And um, I think of that now. I respected my parents' authority, but I understood the nature of it. I also understood that there were some things that was their purvey that they had the right to decide, and there were some things that I had a choice in that were optional. So it's, it, to me, this is a good example of religion and power coming together. Religion and the state coming down. You're going to see this. What is the triad? What is the triad that Jesus faces on trial. Who, how many people did he see? Three. Three. He might have seen four. Annas was kind of in the mix somewhere. Um, but, but the chief three that he saw were who? Caiaphas. Pilate. What? Pilate. Pilate. And Herod. <laughs> so... What you have here is you have the Jews, mm -hmm. the Jewish nation, so you have religion. You have the Jewish state represented by Herod, and you have the Roman state represented by Pilate. So there's, there's a tremendous coalition uh, between religion and the state. And you also have the healing of a wound in the... Jewish nation. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could not get along. If you wanted to have a, a huge fight in the Sanhedrin, all you had to do was bring up the resurrection. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees would just go at each other's throat. We know this because Paul did it. You know, he set them off just to sidetrack them. Squirrel! <laughs> <laughs> so, if that's the case, it took both 
sides with the state to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll see if history repeats itself. What else can we comb out of this? Jesus doesn't back down. What is, what is striking to me about this is you have two kinds of authority face to face. You have the authority of power and force and you have the authority of truth and reason and love. And in truth, you know, we, we tend to think that if we, if we love, if we have truth, we're going to get smooshed. <laughs> oh, clearly. Yeah. But Jesus doesn't allow himself to get smooshed emotionally, psychologically. He stands up to them. And he asks another why question. And they don't strike him twice. So actually he does see Annas, the high priest, and so he sends him. Uh, Annas is, high, you might say, Annas is high priest emeritus. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's old. He's Caiaphas' father, I believe. A father-in-law, right? Father-in-law, that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, and he is Caiaphas. Uh, he is uh, the first one they send him to, but then Caiaphas is more the operative high priest. So uh, Jesus ends up before him. So now we're back to Peter. Peter, <laughs> would you please read uh, verses 25 to 27? 25 to 27. Oh, there's also one item on back on verse 23. It's interesting that, um, at least uh, in the Geneva, verse 23, where Jesus said, If I have evil, if I have evil spoken, bear witness of the evil. Which is almost the same thing Martin Luther said, right? Yeah, show me where I have erred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of interesting. They were not able to respond. No. At least that, that's what the and, evidence and, and Jesus, you think of Jesus, what he could have done under this circumstance. To, to humbly say, okay, if I've done evil, if I've spoken evil, show me what the evil is. It's the same God in, in the Old Testament who says, come, come argue your case before me, Israel. What have I done to you? Answer me. This is Micah 6. So, God never, God stands on his authority of truth and love and, and reason and freedom, but he never is an arrogant God about it. He's never arrogant. He's never arbitrary. Uh, okay, show me. You, you think you have a case against me. Show me the evidence. Very clear. At, at the same time, it seems to reveal even more clearly what the struggle's about, about power. Mm-hmm. It's not based on truth whatsoever. No. You know, no. And it lays there that it's not, we're not having a struggle here based on truth. Obviously, I'm right. You can't answer this. Yeah. So we're having a, a struggle with power. It's like... You should have said so in the first place. And to, the, to the extent that we embrace power, we lose truth. Can't do both. And here we are today, right? Power and control. And here we are today, right? Power and control. So, verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, 
a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to grow. Okay, uh, let's, let's put ourselves in Peter's place right now. What's going through his mind? His world's probably falling apart. His world's falling apart, but what is he trying to keep from happening? I mean, these questions aren't just idle questions of curiosity. He, he didn't want to get carted off. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to get <laughs> arrested, exactly. For, and, being, and whatever Jesus was going, fate was going to be, he didn't want to share it. He's afraid. And you know what? For some reason, John doesn't finish that story. So now we have another question. Why didn't John finish the story? And it was only John who, I think, brought this up. No. It no, it's, it's uh, in another gospel. Um, let me see. I'm talking about verse 26. Oh, the slave of the man. Yeah, he's the only one who mentions that detail. Yeah. But I'm talking about uh, the finishing the story of Peter. Oh. Okay. Peter winds up in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm -hmm. weeping bitterly. Because Luke, it's Luke who finishes the story. Because he says that the cock crowed for the third time. Mm -hmm. he had, Peter had just uh, uttered oaths yeah. uh, to, to just make sure that they understood he was not one of Jesus' disciples. And the cock crows, and, Je and Peter just suddenly remembers Jesus' words, and he looks at Jesus to see if he heard. And Jesus turns, according to Luke, and looks straight at Peter. And that look melted his heart. It was not a look of, how dare you? I warned you. I told you. It's a look of utter sympathy. There hurts more. Full-on brokenness. Mm. Pain. Yeah. Yeah. Pain. And Peter just loses it. But John doesn't tell us that part. Why? Why? That's the question. Why? You might have a little less sympathy for him. I, I do think that John and John didn't always get along with Peter somehow. <laughs> yeah, you, you got it. You, you know, you were warned. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, they weren't perfect. Um, well, he was laughing, you see? You got it. <laughs> On the other hand, he might have, under a converted uh, spirit, might have not wanted to address that. Peter's humility. His shame. Um, so he, he left it for someone else. We don't know when John wrote his gospel. Uh, it's, if he wrote it, uh, and it does seem that he wrote it much later than the other gospels. Luke's gospel was probably already circulating, at least in oral form. And um, he might have known, well, this is covered somewhere else. I'm not going to cover it. So, moving on, Sylvia, would you please read verses 28 to 32? Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, 
What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. I hear a whine, but we aren't permitted to put anybody to death. I'm sorry. Uh, just, that comes out. Yeah, it comes out as a whine. But doesn't doesn't their law allow them to, in the sense of like blasphemy or? Oh, they do, and yeah, that's yeah. what they're trying to charge him with. So that their law is covered. I mean, in other words, they have to put him. They have to submit him to execution uh, under their law too. But they aren't allowed to do the act by the Romans. The Romans have curtailed that. Oh, okay. It has to be the Romans that put him to death. They never answer Pilate's question, really. No. Yeah. What accusation do you bring against this man? Guilty. He's guilty. guilty. He's guilty. guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. Guilty. Yeah, it's true. Pilate's done that neatly. Uh, you know, I find this really interesting. They're willing to unite with the state to put Jesus to death, but they're not willing to contaminate themselves ritually by going in there and getting defiled during Passover. Here they are about to execute the Passover lamb, and, and they want to re avoid ritual defilement so they can eat the Passover lamb. And you had some parallels for today. No, I, yes, my mind is did. blank. <laughs> I said, actually, that's true. My mind is blank. Um, this is called, uh, this is what, this is what uh, a legal religion does to a person. It completely breeds hypocrisy. And, and I used to think, in fact, this went around when I was a kid, a uh, question would be asked, how do you know when you're a hypocrite? And, and the answer was, well, uh, if you don't th know that you're a hypocrite, you're not. Because all <laughs> hypocrites know when they're being hypocritical. And I'm like, now I'm thinking, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> I think hypocrisy is duplicity. And it becomes inbred so deeply sometimes into the psyche that we don't even know we're manipulating and controlling things uh, to suit ourselves and pretending to be someone we're not. We don't even know that. So hypocrisy may be completely, we may be completely ignorant that I'm a hypocrite. I would really strongly agree with that. I sometimes tell my mother-in-law, and she was horrified when I started telling her, I said, she said, how could they, you know, something horrible happens, how could they do that? I said, you know, it's amazing what we can justify in our own minds. Yeah. We could put things in the same box, <laughs> or, you know, just contrary, like we're seeing contrary behavior to very essential things. We self-justify horrible, horrible behavior, horrible behavior, and then you wonder, how could they do, they can do it, and we do it too. And you're never going to, you know, not never going to, but it's hard to want to get into that position. You talk yourself into it. You reason yourself into it. And, and usually escape is very difficult. Yeah, escape is very, yeah. very difficult. It's, it's very difficult. It reminds me of a scene in a vision video of John Wycliffe. 
he's about to be tried uh, for heresy. And he meets with John of Gaunt, who uh, is a, I think, a distant relative of his, a or, or a distant. He's a distant relative of the king. Mm -hmm. He's a prince. Yeah. Uh, he meets with John of Gaunt and attempts to uh, get some coverage to protect him because he's on his way to the trial. And John of Gaunt says, I can't help you this time, John. I just can't help you. But he let me show you some tactics. And so he takes him in sword battles. <laughs> he doesn't make John do the sword battles, but he demonstrates sword battles. You have to maneuver and you have to, you have to do a tactical battle. John, you are too blunt. If you would just stop being so blunt and so you know, forthright, uh, you, would, you would be able to save your hide. And I remember uh, Wycliffe's response, would my lord prefer some Norman duplicity? <laughs> <laughs> Just the French, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, this isn't too far from 1066, yeah, right? Sure. <laughs> Unless my English ancestry comes from Norman <laughs> French, anyway. Every, it seems like every line I follow back comes to a French name. <laughs> Carpenter, and <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but anyway, uh, and, and uh, John of Gaunt, and of course John of Gaunt isn't Norman, as far as I know. But he's, John of Gaunt says to to uh, John, John, you are so exasperating, but I love you for it. <laughs> Go and speak what you have to, and he does. And uh, what interrupts the trial? is a word from the Queen saying, please do not do anything to John Wycliffe. Mm -hmm. um, so John of Gaunt did do something. Uh, he works with the Queen uh, to bring about change. But um, what is the source of hypocrisy? Pride. I think so, ultimately. I want to blame the Babylonians again, <laughs> since I, as I've mentioned, it's easy to blame the Babylonians, they're not still around <laughs> as well, a nation. And they were so good at it. <laughs> I don't uh, want to hear it, I'm just very interested in <laughs> blaming the Babylonians. Well, it is the Babylonians who created an artificial reality that we are so familiar with today, mm -hmm. called economics, kingship, and law. The, everything became, a, every relationship, instead of being a, a bond of love and trust, every relationship became legal. So that uh, it was bound by external control instead of internal love and trust. So a marriage contract, for example, became a completely legal proposition and it had economic uh, justification for it. Uh, so that you didn't marry for love, you married for uh, economic and status uh, and power. Um, and and women rarely had any choice in the matter. Um, so uh, uh, if um, all, I'm thinking of all other relationships, even personal relationships tended to be contractual, transactional relationships. Uh, you think, I, I'm going to take this to the Hebrew Bible because the Hebrew culture imbibed in this to some degree 
here's David and Jonathan, who Jonathan loves David with all his heart. And what happens? They make a legal covenant. Why? Wasn't their bond of trust enough? No, because politically David's headed for the throne. And Jonathan has the right to the throne as a son of Saul. And so there's not quite the trust they should have. And so they try to compensate for that trust by legal means. And that artificial kind of relationship that we're getting so far removed from that my students this last week, I tried to explain happen in terms of those real relationships. They simply did, had very difficult time understanding what I was saying. That is what has bred hypocrisy. It's no longer real. It's contrived. It's how we're, it's, uh, I, Angel Hernandez said this to me one time. That I, I've quoted him countless <coughs> times since. He said, Law is the bailing wire we use to tie relationships together that are falling apart. That is, that is the core behind hypocrisy. And, and the farther we go in that trajectory, the Babylonians started. And, and the reason the Bab I say the Babylonians started this is because it really started with probably Hammurabi. And, and maybe some precedents before. Uh, but... Um, so Sumerians, the, the myths you have of Inanna and falling in love with Dumuzi don't sound at all like the Babylonians had finally invented in terms of marriage. I and mean, she falls in love with Dumuzi, and they have a marriage. And, and, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like what we envision as the ideal relationship. But um, you move to the Babylonians, and suddenly you have all these legal constructions and all these legal contracts, and uh, and so on. But don't you think, in defense of the Babylonians, <laughs> that it's also part of fallen human nature? Well, I, d I definitely We've think so. We've all latched onto it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's so not just them. It's us. It but the but the it, reason you know? the, there's a reason why I keep blaming the Babylonians is because of. Uh, Babylonia is a metaphor. Babylon is a metaphor in scripture for something very specific. Okay. Um, and and I believe that when John wrote Revelation, you know, there's a reason why, and I've I mentioned this last time, but uh, not all of you were here. And there's a reason why John keeps calling the the people that put Jesus to death the Jews. No other gospels do that. Well, I take that back. A few of them do. But where does this term, the Jews, come from? What does it mean? Margaret Barker, a New Testament scholar, believes that the Jews refers to the Jews coming from Babylonia. Oh, interesting. And, and the thing that she doesn't, she doesn't point out so much is the enormous influence of Babylon on where Judaism went and became. Judaism emerges out of the exile, out of Babylonia. And the Sanhedrin, the Kenishtu in Babylonia, uh, is this body that's going to sentence Jesus to death. Um, they, are, they resemble the Kenishtu uh, of priests in, uh, in Babylonia. And they're called that in Babylonian documents. 
there's there's just tremendous and then the way Caiaphas handles the trial is very Babylonian this this acetory oath this that he tries to get Jesus to make to condemn himself and so on uh, and uh, there's just there's just a host of things their their preoccupation with illnesses caused by demons uh, is very Babylonian you don't have that in the Old Testament illness is not tied to demonology uh, that, that's a the, tough one because you know the the crippled woman that was healed on the Sabbath. Uh, most of the evidence suggests that she was demon possessed because most of the translations specify the time is, of possession as eighteen years. In fact, I think most of the translations will say Satan bound her for eighteen years, depending on which translation you read. Right, but that's the word. It's not possession. It's binding. And Jesus, Jesus never, never speaks of her as he doesn't cast any demons out. He doesn't say, "Come on, out of them." He doesn't talk to them like he does in other demon possession situations. He simply says, "Should not this woman be loosed by Satan, who has bound her these eighteen years?" So Jesus may be actually correcting this Jewish preoccupation of demon possession. So, but, then, but then we had, in Jeff, remember uh, about a month ago, we read in, I think it was chapter 5, about the crippled he- healed at the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus runs into him a little bit later, mm-hmm. and he says something like, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Right. The consequences of sin do, do affect our bodies. That doesn't mean there's demons involved. Okay. Because uh, there's nothing mentioned about demons in the text. Our time is up. I think we're going to back up and do verse 28 next time again and following because we haven't covered everything. Thank you all. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that Jesus gives us an unparalleled example of the nature of authority and how it responds to power. We ask that you will help us to be so settled into you so constantly abiding in you that when we need to exercise the same kind of authority Jesus did, that you will help us to remain humble and yet confident in, the, in what you have for us and that you are with us and that you will be with our mouths and teach us what we will say. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat>